When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. you guys ever been fired okay canned you don't have to tell me i mean there's no shame in it unless i guess you were caught what embezzling from the company or <laughs> punching a co-worker you know a famous nbc newscaster named linda ellerby once said never trust anyone in the business who hasn't been fired at least once so i mean hey it happened to me oh excuse me in the news business it's called non-renewal of contract. But I I was halfway through my third year, my first on-air job, WSYX, Channel 6 News, Columbus, Ohio. And uh, the news director, Bill Payer, I swear that was his name, Bill Payer, pulled me into his office one night before the 11 o'clock news and said that an ad would be going into broadcasting and cable the following Monday. And it was advertising for my job and that I would be out. Uh, you know, in television, they don't give you a reason. It may just be that I wasn't his his person. He didn't hire me and he wanted to bring in people that fit his vision. But I, I was shocked. But I remained calm and cool. It was just him and me in the office with the door closed. Nobody saw it, which was definitely helpful. But of course, when I got home, I dissolved into a total puddle of tears. But by daybreak, I was ready to face the world, move forward. Now, I want you guys to imagine You're in the middle of a meeting with your entire team and in walks a messenger with an exit package that basically says, you're done, you're out. Fired by messenger. It happened to Greg Renfrew as she was working at Susie Hilfiger's Best in Company. But did Greg dissolve? Nope. In fact, she used that mortifying moment to start her own company, which today is getting so much attention millions in revenue. We want to hear how she did it. Greg Renfrew is here with me now. She's the founder of Beauty Counter. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Hi, Greg. Hi, Liz. How are you? I'm great. Fired by messenger in front of your team? That's (laughs) like being served a subpoena where they run up to you and jam it in your hand. It was a low moment for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly unexpected. You know, we can't really know how you summon the strength to deal with that charming experience until we know more about you. So I, I wanted you to first tell us about where you grew up and when you first got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. I grew up, I was born in New York City and grew grew up in and out of the city. My father, uh, my parents got divorced when I was seven. And so my dad was always based in New York City and I grew up in the suburbs of New York. And I think that, you know, from a very early age, I loved working. I always wanted to have pocket money. So I was always the kid that was working the dinner party, babysitting from age 11 on, doing anything I could to make a little bit of money. One, because we kind of needed it, but two, just because I I enjoyed having that that freedom of being able to say, you know, at the time, probably I want to buy a candy bar or whatever it was then. But now, you know, I've always felt the desire to be independent, uh, financially independent. What did your parents think of that? My parents gave me many gifts. I think the greatest gift that my parents ever gave me was the gift of confidence. And one of the things that both of my parents said to me from the day that I was born is you 
you can be anything you want to be. You can have anything you want to have in life. You just have to work really, really hard. And we have every confidence in you. So pursue your dreams. You know, my dad was entrepreneurial. Uh, one of the one of the things that was challenging in our family financially was that my dad was entrepreneurial. He was he was incredibly intelligent and had unbelievable ideas, but was really too far ahead of his time. Mm. So I grew up being exposed to entrepreneurial endeavors and also being exposed to the need to have financial stability. And with the confidence from my parents that I could do what I wanted to do if I worked really hard. Wait, so was he like an inventor? I'm thinking of every, you know, honey, I no, shrunk the kids. No, not. No, my dad was. A, my dad worked on Wall Street. You know, he was a he was a trader back in the day and a very successful trader. And then and then technology took over and the type of trading he was doing became obsolete. And then he had a couple of ideas. I mean, one of his his biggest ideas that I remember when I was a young, you know, very young, like ten or eleven, was mm-hmm. that he really thought that people should not waste time driving around the countryside. We were living again in the suburbs of New York, or he wasn't at the time, but my mom and my brother and I were, that you wouldn't want to drive around all day looking at houses that you would never like. And so he started a video company that would videotape properties. And so you could just go to the real estate office and look at the videotapes and then decide which ones you actually thought were worth looking at. Now, if you think about like realtor.com, you know, 20, 30 years later, I mean, he was absolutely onto something. He just was too far ahead of his time. Oh, Zillow. So he, was not, he was not putting like, he was not putting, you know, yeah. And then Zillow, then of course today Zillow, but he was not putting potions together in our kitchen. <laughs> and blowing up. Yeah, exactly. Blowing no. up the stove. Uh, okay. So you're starting and you're doing babysitting and you're doing all of these other activities that are getting you a little pocket change. But let's talk about your college years. Uh, did that hustle that you had in the earlier part of your life translate? And, you know, in what form did you begin to say, I could really start businesses here? I think when I, you know, when I went to college, again, I always, I, I always, I'm, I'm very good at spending money. So I've always needed to make money. <laughs> and I went to the University of Vermont. And when I got to UVM, I wanted to have always had a side hustle. So you know, I did a lot of waitressing, cocktail waitressing. My boyfriend in college, his family owned a, a motor in motor lodge in Stowe, Vermont. So I would waitress for his family. I would waitress. I, I you know worked in a deli that had sort of a specialty deli. I was always doing that. I always had a side job. I didn't necessarily have an entrepreneurial thing going through most of my college days, at least when I was when I was during the school year. But when I got to the summer, I would always do something entrepreneurial, and it really started. The summer of my sophomore year, I decided to go to the island of Nantucket with some friends mm-hmm. and needed to make money. And so I decided to start cleaning houses because it was something that I knew I could do well and I knew I could make a lot of money because people on vacation don't want to spend their time cleaning their homes. And so that's what I did. And that was probably my first true entrepreneurial endeavor was starting this cleaning company on Nantucket. Okay, wait a minute. I don't know many kids of people who worked on Wall Street or who were brokers who say, yay, let me go out and, quite frankly, scrub people's floors and toilets. This is this is unusual. And, of course, I'm thinking, you know, a little bubble over my head. How do I get my kids to do this? Make them – don't give them any money and they'll figure it out. <laughs> I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, my parents were really – you know, my parents both had come from well-positioned families by many standards, but most standards, but I think that they – really both of them had an incredible work ethic and it was expected of us from the earliest days to turn off the lights, to make your bed, to to help out, you know, in the home, that was just a family responsibility. It wasn't, you didn't get allowance for that. That was part of, 
you know, what you were do, what you did as part of the family. And I think that that's always was instilled in me from day one, but I think I just enjoyed it. I, I think I could see, I think one of the gifts that I've been given in life is that I have the ability to see things that are potentially coming, or I can, I can put things together in my head and then bring them to fruition. And so when I started thinking about how to make money on Nantucket, you know, the, the, a lot of the places weren't hiring. We got there late in the summer, later in the summer. So a lot of the jobs have been taken. And I thought, well, we can do this because no one wants to clean houses. I just saw an opportunity and I decided to go for it. Brilliant. Now let me fast forward to graduation day. All right. So you, still University of Vermont, right? With the degree in English. Correct. Great moment. The cap and gown, you throw it up. You're like, give me my presents for graduation. What did you receive for graduation? Well, I think I got a I got a breakup letter from my boyfriend. First of all, <laughs> Whoa. Wrote me a long letter saying we've had a great run. I love you, but <laughs> I was I was heartbroken. <laughs> I had three years three years of dating my you know the love of my life in college, and then he he dumped me you know the day we graduated basically. But I got it when I was uh, in terms of gifts, so I got that. I still have the card that he wrote me. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, who's sorry um, now? Yeah, no, you know, it's actually, it's actually kind of funny. It actually fits into what we're discussing because he basically said, you know, you and I are going to want really different things out of life. And I, I love you and I will always love you, but you're, we're going to take different paths. And we really, really did. And we're still, you know, friends to this day. Good. But I think more importantly, I got uh, my mother who was, you know, played such a huge role in my life. I mean, she, I, everyone's mother is instrumental to their lives, but my mom and I have always been very close. And she gave me a black leather briefcase with my initials SGR on it and a check for $5,000 and said, you're on your own and you can do with this money, you know, as you wish. I would suggest you put some of it into the bank right now. I would go find a job immediately and I would, you know, get a couple good suits and find an apartment. But, you know, she said, you can do whatever you want to, but this is the only money that we're going to give you. And she meant it. And so that was my 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 parting gift from college. Not a piece of jewelry, but a briefcase, which I still have. <laughs> Were you Don't use a it little shocked by that? Did you think she meant it? I knew my mother meant it. My mother, my mother is one of those people that when she says something, she never changes her mind. She is an incredibly calm, rational, and, and determined woman, and she's always meant business. I'm, you know, I've learned in parenting to be. I've learned that from my mother that when you don't say no often, but when you say no, you mean no. And the same thing, I knew that she meant it that she wasn't going to give me any more money. And I think again, going back to my earliest days, she had every confidence in me. She knew that I could be successful, and she said, "Look, I'm not going to go pay for you to be." a ski bum with your friends out in Colorado or to go travel around the world. You can do that if you want to, as long as you don't come back to me with, you know, with money. And I, and I, for money, and I do remember a really good friend of mine wanted to go spend a year in Australia. And I was really intrigued by what she was planning on doing. And my mom said, great, but just look at the economics of it. You know, that, that flight's going to cost you about a thousand dollars. You know, you just need to start working out. So, uh, you know, I worked through the numbers and I went and got a job. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> yeah, you were you were going to go play on the, the coast of Sydney. I mean, forget it. That wasn't happening. No, but I was mad about that. I mean, admittedly, I was mad. I wanted to go have fun like most of my friends. A lot of my friends were doing that. You know, a lot of my friends were fortunate enough to have come from families that had afforded them a debt-free education. And they, were, they weren't particularly stressed about money at the time. And look, I don't think you need to be stressed about the money during the summer after college. But at the end of the day, if you're not planning for your future, if you're not always looking one, three, five years ahead, you're, you're, at some point you're going to get yourself in trouble or potentially get yourself in trouble. So I think my mom was, she was saying, look, go get a job and then have some fun this summer. So that's exactly what I did. So I actually graduated, went immediately, drove from that boyfriend's house who broke up with me from his house to New York City, 
took an apartment and looked for a job and I had a job and was fortunate enough to get, you know, by myself like six weeks, went back to Nantucket, did the cleaning for that period of time that summer to have a little more money in my pocket and then started my job around Labor Day. Okay. So how was that job? What was it? Were you inspired by it? Was it exactly what you wanted? Because I'm always telling people opportunities are going to pass you and fly past you in packages you don't recognize, but that you really should grab them, even if it's something that you think you didn't want to do. My first job was working for a company called Mark Communications. It was an advertising, a print advertising firm. I was paid $19,000 a year, and I was an account manager on Talbots and Taylor and, at the time, Conrad's Habitat. And, you know, was it inspiring? I mean, of course, going on photo shoots with models and things like that seemed really fun. I was living in New York and mm-hmm. excited. But I felt, I, I will say this, I remember at, over the holidays going home, this is going to make me sound really arrogant, and I hope it doesn't, but I remember going and speaking to a man who had been a real mentor in my life, who was, you know, one of my friend's dads. And I said, you know, I feel like a lot of these men that I'm working for, I feel like I'm smarter than they are. I don't, (laughs) I don't think they really get what that. I don't think they really get it. Like, I don't think that they, that they're seeing things the way that, that I see things. It's interesting. They didn't, they didn't listen to younger people and they were kind of old school, you know, advertising guys. And they, you know, they kind of became obsolete. I mean, Years later, they pitched me. I think when I maybe it was at Best and Company or or the wedding list, they were pitching me, and it was it was so ironic that they were trying to get my business. You know, years later, but anyway, so that was a big. I, I think I realized pretty quickly that I enjoyed business. That this wasn't the perfect job because I wasn't earning enough money, and I didn't work for people that inspired me. Right. Although I thought they were really nice, but I think it was one of those moments where I realized, well, I am smart enough to do this, and maybe I'm going to be smarter than some of these people. And even if I didn't go to Harvard or Yale or some fancy college, like I have, I have the street smarts to be successful in business. Indeed, uh, you know, you said something that. And I don't see it as arrogant. There are points in people's lives where they sit in their place of work and they see people who are maybe getting more opportunity, perhaps bigger salary, but they know within their hearts, I'm the fastest runner. I'm not allowed to win. That's a really frustrating thing, is it not? And you got to just move on. You can't be angry at the at the place where you are, uh, because if they're still paying you, you know, if it's the way it's going to be, you got to recognize that 10 miles down the road and pull the parachute, right? For sure. For sure. I think you always need to be, I mean, I think you need to be looking out for yourself at all times and knowing that if, you know, if an opportunity is not there, if you're not being afforded an opportunity where you are, then you need to make changes Mm -hmm. and you need to you know, you need to either work hard, you know, stop being the conscientious student and start saying, you know, here I am, I exist and, and, and figure out a way for someone to take notice of your efforts or, or go find a new job. So after that moment where you realized time to go, what happened next? What happened next was I had, you know, I was living in New York and I was about six months into being out of college and I had an American Express bill that was probably, I don't know, let's just say a thousand dollars that I couldn't pay because I had I don't know, gone shopping, gone out with my friends, you know, still living, thinking that I had enough money to pay my bills. And I called my mother and I said, mom, I don't think I can pay this American Express bill. And she said, well, guess it's time for you to get a new job. And she, again, she wasn't going to bail me out. She had made her, she, she had made her point very clear to me. And I knew that she wouldn't, but I thought maybe in that moment she might bail me out, but she said no. And so, you know, she said, you need to find a job that's paying you a lot more money than $19,000 a year. And so I, 
started looking for a job and a couple of my friends had gone over to work for Xerox Corporation and I knew that they had a really good sales training program. And I think I always felt that I was outgoing and, and I liked sales. I liked business development and sales. And so I was introduced and started interviewing and, and immediately got a job working for Xerox as a marketing representative in, in Manhattan on the west side in the jewelry district of New York, just like Howard Schultz. I, I heard him once speak and <laughs> talked about how he had the exact same the exact same district that I had. And, it, you know, if, if there's one thing that that humbles you, it's selling copiers in the jewelry district of New York City. I was saying this to my daughter two days ago. We were in an office building and she was looking at the different offices. And I said, Phoebe, I used to literally knock on these doors, <laughs> go door to door, knock and sell people copiers. What did she think? How old is she, first of all? She's almost 15. She she was like, what do you mean you knocked on doors? I like, that's what I did. I literally physically knocked on the doors, had literally had hundreds of doors slammed in my face. But I'll tell you, I got really good at sales because I learned how to listen to people. And I learned how to understand what their needs were and then how to you know, bring products into their into their world that made sense for their business needs. And so I became very good at it. But it's I also but it's also a, a very unique microcosm there. It's one block from us. We're at we're on Sixth Avenue between Forty Seventh and Forty Eighth, and I pass the jewelry district. And those those folks are aggressive. They stand outside their doors. They're trying to bring you in. Look at these diamonds. You're beautiful. Your neck needs a necklace. And and uh, you know there are a lot of <laughs> Orthodox Jewish people there. You got to reflect upon them the fact that you understand them well it was funny because i am you know i'm i'm white i'm christian they used to and you're right it was mostly much older orthodox mm-hmm. jewish men and they of course would you know make fun of me i can't remember what they called me they all made fun of me it was, <laughs> i was like this like waspy girl coming in and um but i learned how to negotiate with them i learned what so it's interesting for them it was all about the art of negotiation. And if they felt that you were willing to walk away from the business, if you they felt like they'd really broken you and they'd gotten the best deal, then they would sign. And so what I learned, you know, after, you know, really the first time I finally said, you know what, I actually, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't care about your business. And I started to walk out the door and the man said to me, okay, I'll sign. And I realized that that was what they wanted. And so from that point forward, I learned how to navigate these conversations, listening to their needs. And, and quite frankly, it's difficult because jewelry people don't really need a whole lot of copiers, but we were able to come up with this sort of combined facts and copier situation. And I learned how to negotiate with them. And I became one of the top salespeople that year in the country. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, 
they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. And when did your first business come about that you founded? Well, other than my cleaning company on Nantucket, I then um, was, so during this whole period of time, I was going to millions of weddings and I started a a very unsuccessful, so you talk about being fired. Yes, I have been fired, but I've also, you know, had a few crash and burn situations with companies (laughs) I've started. So I started a bridesmaid's dress company on the side with a friend of mine. We called it Elizabeth Gregg, which is our two middle names. And I really felt there was a need to create better bridesmaids dresses. I mean, I was going to all these weddings wearing these dresses that I hated that looked terrible on me that I didn't want to spend money on. And it's, you know, I, we, we did about 40 weddings and then we decided to throw in the towel. We just couldn't make any money because too complicated. And the girls, you know, they'd say they were one size and they were completely a different size and no one was ever happy. And so it was a failure, but it was probably my first real business that I, that I had started. And it was fun. I mean, I learned a lot during that. And, and that business, Elizabeth Gregg led me to it ultimately led me to the wedding list because I, in my, after Xerox in my day job was sent to London for working for a brokerage firm. So I left Xerox and I went on to work in, on wall street very briefly and was, was transferred to London. And when I was in London, I was trying to sell my bridesmaids dresses to a woman that had a business called the wedding list in the UK. And I quickly learned that they didn't really use bridesmaids in the same way that we do in the U S I think it's changed since then, but at the time they were only using children. So my dresses were not interesting to her, but I was very intrigued by her wedding registry con- uh, concept. And we became friends and kept in touch over a couple of years. And that led me to my next thing, which was the wedding list. In the U.S. And that eventually, I remember it being acquired by Martha Stewart. Correct. We started, so she had this shop on Walton Street in, in Lightsbridge in London and or South Kensington, I don't know what technically it is, but she she had a wedding concept that was all being done out of a physical shop. And I said to her, this is a really interesting concept, but have you considered, and have you considered bringing, you know, putting it online? And so when we brought the wedding list to the States, we actually were one of the first true multi-channel retail businesses in the United States. And we had a couple of showrooms in New York and in Boston, we had London, and then we had our, the online portion of it. And it was, it was a really interesting time because it was right when the dot-com market was starting to, to grow. And we were able to prove that you could have a seamless experience on and offline for, for your customer. And which, which is a very difficult, I think back to my, my, my deck when I was pitching on, you know, Sand Hill Road out in, you know, Silicon Valley. Uh, Silicon Valley and trying to pitch them on the online, the convenience of online purchasing. I mean, it makes me seem like I'm 200 years old, but I mean, you know, at the time, wow, no doing that yet. it was a long time ago. This was like late nineties and you know, it was, it was a different time. Uh, definitely. It was also almost like the wild West. And there was almost a, a panicked feeling on behalf of companies that had cash and capital had liquidity that they wanted to snap up a bunch of things and you were the first acquisition, I believe, for Martha Stewart Omnimedia. Um, you know, my producer Tanya Joseph is here, and she had said, "Ask her, you know, what was the most important business lesson you learned from Martha Stewart?" I, I think that's a great question. What was it? I learned so many things from Martha. I think the thing that I have learned from Martha is 
that in order to be successful at leading your people, you need to be a servant leader. And that was not her way of leading. And I think that I learned behaviors maybe that I, that were not, that didn't, were not synergistic with the way that I wanted to be a leader on my own. I had started my own company, the wedding list. I had merged mine. She acquired us. And yes, we were the first acquisition and it was very much a, a fear-based culture, which actually I think was counterintuitive to everything she was trying to, to drive, which was creativity. And so for mm. me, I really learned that listening to your people and being one with your people and that it's not really about you. It, it, you can build a brand on a single person. And she was, she's, she was, she still is, but at the time she was brilliant at taking an average middle income woman in the United States and making look like a, her, like, making her giving her the opportunity to be a star in her home by showing her how on a budget she could do a great party or have a, you know, make a great Halloween costume or whatever. She was incredible at that. But I think that what I learned is that I don't, I don't want to be a leader that is making it all about me, that I believe in working with the team and that it takes a village to be successful and that the most successful companies are those where the leader is more of a servant leader rather than a dictator from the top. I mean, maybe the question should have been, what did you learn from Martha Stewart that you didn't want to do? And I I, I hear you. You know, that is just as valuable as saying, I learned from her that, you know, you got to be organized in this and that. But, But also you can see what works and what doesn't as you rise up. And then you left there and you went to Susie Hilfiger. That's Tommy's Tommy's wife? Ex, now ex-wife. Now yes, they ex-wife. were in the middle of the divorce at the time. Yes. So I, when I left Martha Stewart, I did some consulting. And one of the things that I did was uh, I consulted for Bergdorf Goodman. And Best & Company had a, a, a shop within Bergdorf Goodman at the time. And which was, you know, Best & Company was a, was a very high-end children's clothing company. And... It had gone defunct back in the 50s or 60s, 60s or 70s, and then she had reinvigorated the brand and was trying to really create a beautiful high-end children's clothing line. And I had done this consulting project within Bergdorf Goodman, and they caught wind of it, and I had been asked to do a, a quick uh, baby registry project for them based on my experience with the wedding list, and then about a, which I did and completed it. And then about a year later or maybe eight months later, Tommy called me and said, would you be interested in being the CEO of Best and Company? Wow. We're really trying to turn the business around. And of course, it was such an honor to be called by Tommy Hilfiger. I mean, you know, it was, it was amazing. And, and I think what I learned from that experience is when something sounds like it's too good to be true, it probably is. You know, I had a very, you know, sort of a a great, you know, great job, plum, you know, plum job salary, you know, lots of equity, but probably I should have seen the writing on the wall that I was going to be caught in the crosshairs of well, that relationship and that Susie didn't really want to create a really big business out of it. I think it was more like a, an oncoming freight train versus writing on the wall because that brings us to what we began with, fired by messenger. What happened? Bring our listeners back to that moment that day. Well, so I was in the middle of a, we had about 60 people in the office at the time uh, in this, in a meeting, we were in an all, you know, we had a New York office and a Connecticut office, and this was the New York city office. There were about 60 or 80 of us all in a room. And I received, you know, that someone walked in, it was a courier service and said, are you Greg Renfrew? And I said, yes, I am kind of probably, probably like with a little bit of, you know, cocky, you know, hold on everybody. I'm having this thing. <laughs> And I opened up this letter and it said, you know, you're fired and you're out of here. Like you're going to be removed from the building right now. And it was just, 
I mean, I was just, look, I knew that things weren't going particularly well between myself and Susie. And, and, and quite frankly, in fairness to Susie, I, like, I don't respect the way in which I was fired. I don't think you should ever fire someone by messenger. I mean, if you want to let someone go, you look them in the eye and you tell them why you're firing them. And a lot of people will hide behind their lawyers and whatever. I'm sure you know from your industry. But at the end of the day, you should tell someone directly, this isn't working for these reasons. But that said, I think at the end of the day, I was I was cocky and I was young. And I don't think I learned how to channel her creativity and, and understand her. And I think that I probably didn't know how to pull the best out of her and her look at her strengths and then support her weaknesses. I was kind of good at telling her why she was wrong. And I think at the end of the day, we'd had some struggles and I didn't see eye to eye in the way she wanted to run the business. And I was sort of, it's a, not dissimilar to my experience at Martha Stewart, where I was caught between two people. When I was at Martha Stewart, I had two bosses, Martha and Sharon Patrick, who was the chief operating officer. And they didn't see eye to eye. So no matter who I was talking to, I was always I was always in trouble with the other person. And it was a little bit like that was Tommy and Susie where they had differences of opinion. So I couldn't really win, but anyway, it was, it was a, it was a really humiliating low moment. I mean, I think I walked out, my friend picked me up in a cab and I probably cried for days. It was right before Thanksgiving. So I think I literally went out to, you know, to someone's home and, you know, drank a lot of wine and cried for a couple of days. I was, I was shocked. And I was also shocked by how everyone reacted. I sort of thought that everyone was going to, you know, rally around me and come to my defense. But I think at the end of the day, people don't want to lose their jobs and they were nervous. And it was just a really, really awkward time. And I was I was really upset, humiliated and angry. It's interesting because you see who your true friends really are. When I had my non-renewal of contract at Channel 6 in Columbus, people I thought would immediately reach out didn't know how to react but then others who I wasn't particularly close with came right up and said, boy, we're going to miss you. You were you a rock star. You were a rock star, but, but better things are ahead. And they always are. Isn't that true? And for you, I mean, I ended up in Cleveland, which was, a, um, you know, it's arguable with some people whether that's better than Columbus. It was much bigger market, amazing news professionals, and I was on my way. But for you – that's what led you to where you are today, Beauty Counter. And I need to know the genesis of the the spirit, the soul, and the emotion of this company. You know, I think at the end of the day, you're right. I, I will say before I say some, answer the question about Beauty Counter, I do think that it is okay to get fired. And I, I think that sometimes people should look at it more as a relief than – I wish more people when they when they get – when they get fired, when they've gotten fired, could look at the opportunity it presents and, mm. and not so much sort of playing the victim. Because I think at the end of the day, there is a reason you're being fired and there is a better opportunity and a better fit for you out there. And I think, you know, sometimes having those low moments and having to dig deep and having to work harder and having to find that self-confidence, those are the very, those are the very things that actually lead you to a more successful future. And I think for me, digging deep and understanding that this was not going to break me. Yes, it was a moment, you know, I was temporarily humiliated, but I was going to rise above this. I mean, look, Steve Jobs got fired from his own company and he's one of the most <laughs> successful men and, you know, was one of the most successful men in the history of the world. So I do think that it led me to, to, to do a few things. And one of the things that led me to do at that time was, was focus on my family a little bit because I had, I had one daughter, I was pregnant with my son and I had a caregiver who had been diagnosed with cancer. And, and I bring all this up to say that this is part of what led me to Beauty Counter 
is I prior to prior to working at Best and Company, I had watched an Inconvenient Truth, the documentary film that really, sure. you know, really it was a it was a game changing film for me. It really rocked my world and made me and impassioned me with the environmental health movement. And then subsequent to that, while I was at Best and Company, I kept trying to have conversations around what can we do to protect those babies when they're being born and these little children. And you know, yes, it's nice that they have pretty clothes, but what are we washing those cl- clothes with? And how do we educate these new moms? And so when I was fired, I spent a little bit of time you know, at home and I was doing some consulting, but I was more at home than I've ever been in my other, any point in my career. And I had a 31 year old nanny who had been taking care of my daughter while I was the CEO of Essen Company who had been diagnosed with a non HPV related cervical cancer. And in 11 months, she, we had lost her. And that, that 11 month period Mm -hmm. of trying to save her life, but also trying to understand how this woman had been diagnosed with cancer and what was going on was a big part of what led me to Beauty Counter because I started to look at everything she was doing and we were working with the Mayo Clinic and all these different organizations and I was learning about our exposure to toxic chemicals and it was part of my research for Beauty Counter and it led me to realize that we were putting chemicals of concern you know, on our bodies, we were microwaving things in plastic. We were, you know, eating things with, you know, that were heavily preserved and all of that really led me to beauty counter, which it was that coupled with watching many of my friends be diagnosed with different types of cancer while I was living in New York, watching some of my close friends struggling with fertility, watching other friends giving birth to children with serious health issues, you know, severe allergies or asthma and wondering, okay, what's gone wrong with the environment? What's going wrong with all of the health of these people? And the one thing I could, that I could, point to was, was our exposure to toxic chemicals. And knowing that I started to make sweeping changes in my home and that was much easier to do. Yes, it cost money and yes, it took time, but I could get rid of nonstick pans or switch from plastic to glass or wash my floors with water and vinegar. But when it came to skincare, cosmetics and personal care products for myself and my family, I just, I really couldn't find products that were void of the chemicals of concern. I know the chemicals I wanted out of my, out of my home and out of my body or off of my body. In my children's bodies. So and you began to manufacture beauty counter products, skincare, which is now blossomed into a massive company. Uh, is it global now? Are you selling all over the world? We are not yet selling all over the world. We are selling right now just in North America. So we're in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, we hope by the end of 2020 to have international shipping up and running and then to you know, expand globally starting in 2021. So we do know that there's an opportunity, but we have grown a pretty significant business. I think at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we we pioneered and led and have led and continue to lead the clean beauty movement as as the definitive leader. And we've just we've just been incredibly focused on our North Star, which is our mission of getting safer products into the hands of everyone through education, through our product and through through the work we do in Washington. And I think it's just it's just been, it was the right, right moment in time. I think back to my dad and what I said earlier about him being a little ahead of his time. I think that while no one was really talking about clean beauty and that I think we coined the phrase clean beauty, I think it was still green. I think people were starting to wake up to the fact that there were things, there were some chemicals of concern out there. They were looking at the time at food, but I think we've been able to transition people from food to personal care products to, to draw that connection of what you put in and on your body. Well, skincare you put it on your body and the skin absorbs it. Now, you put together something called the Never List. How many chemicals are now on this Never List and they are not in your products at all? We choose 
uh, we have taken 1800 chemicals that we believe are chemicals of concern and we choose not to formulate with those chemicals. And we also screen for trace contaminants, you know, trace levels of those, those ingredients in our products, because we believe that it's not just enough to restrict. I think a lot of companies are claiming to be clean today and they are, they are restricting ingredients. And that to me is the first step in, in what it means to be a clean beauty brand. But for us, it's also, how do we look end to end on, you know, ethical practices, sustainability, carbon footprint, trace contaminants, you know, there, there's so much to it. It starts with restricting the ingredients. You've taken it well beyond chemicals that may cause cancer and looked at how some of these widely used minerals, chemicals, and products in makeup of the most famous brands are actually mined. You put together a documentary called Transparency, the Truth About Mica, which is the glitter that makes all of the uh, the facial products that give you that glow, right? Um, that the sparkly glow. Child labor is what pulls it out of the ground, correct? Correct. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes. And that's one of those things when we think about being a clean beauty brand, you need to look beyond just the ingredients. Yes, you need to restrict chemicals of concern, but then you need to do a lot more to ensure the safety of workers, your environmental impact, you know, what is the long-term sustainability of your brand and your products? And that's something that we're looking at very seriously and trying to bring, trying to shed some light so that people can make informed decisions and that we can use the power of education to move markets. I would say that uh, we've heard of blood diamonds. This is almost like blood makeup. I, I really am so happy that you have shed light on this because I think it is crucial for people to understand and I have actually cross-checked some of the makeup I have and the ingredients with your Never List. And I was really annoyed, disappointed, and shocked to see how much of the Never List is in the products I was using. And I've got to talk to my daughter about this. I have an 18-year-old daughter. She's obsessed with your company now. But, I mean, I have to say it is really something people need to take ownership of and you are – this this great resource for, for something like this. And I guess in the end, though, from listening to your story, I, I hope our listeners can pick up so many lessons, not just doing the right thing in their businesses, but being financially independent on from an early age, remaining humble and chasing the dreams that are out there, but at the same time, leaving a positive impact on the world and the lives of others. What's your key advice to somebody looking to enter the business world but also tap into, you know, the right way of doing entrepreneurial endeavors. I mean, I think my advice to everyone, and and I speak, I feel that I speak to women often, but I think this is true for both women and men. I do genuinely believe that you have everything that you need to be successful. I do believe that digging deep and not looking for others to validate you, but going into business conversations, discussions, you know, looking at ideas that you may have with confidence is incredibly important. I think one of the things that happens oftentimes with those who have an entrepreneurial spirit or have an idea that they are told that, that they can't do it, that it's impossible. And I am here to tell you, when I started Beauty Counter, just like when I started the wedding list, that people told me no one would want to shop for wedding gifts online. And people told me that no one was going to care about clean beauty. And I am, I am a proof point that the impossible can be possible. And that, 
You just need to work really, really hard. You just need to, you know, have confidence in yourself. I think the other thing that I have learned over the years, and I'm sure you would say the same, is that when you know where you're strong and where you are weak, you will be more successful in business. So if you are very keenly aware of your strengths and play to them while understanding the areas in which you're not as strong and rather than hiding them, find support around you to strengthen your you know, sort of overarching proposition, that will also serve you very well. Humility, humility is a key factor in being successful as, as much as hard work is. I want to ask you what you look for when you're hiring people. What is that, that lightning in a bottle, that something important that you have to see before you are ready to commit to allowing somebody to come into your business and work with you? For, for one, I look for people with determination, drive, and passion. I want someone who genuinely, and I feel like, I would say to people when, when you know, if you're afforded the opportunity to come work for, for, for Beauty Counter, take the job. Don't be an idiot. Take the job because this opportunity <laughs> gives you the chance to build a business that will be financially rewarding and also have such significant social impact. If I don't feel that they actually feel in their bones that this is something that they believe in, if they don't believe in their mission, our mission, if they don't believe in women and the power of women, if they don't believe in equal opportunity for everyone, they're probably not the right candidates for this company. And so I think that, you know, I don't want someone to just, who's just going through the, the, the paces of answering my questions and have all these stock answers. I always ask the question, what, what are you not, what, where are you going to disappoint me? What are you not good at? And if they can't answer the question, if they can't say, well, some people say, oh, well, I just, I just, I do try to do too many things. I'm just too good at too many things or whatever. That's not an answer. Tell me, like I can say, I'm not strong on the financial side of things. Like I, I'm impatient. I can be short. I can, you know, I can, I can clearly articulate the areas in which I'm weak. And so I look at for people who are self-aware enough to be able to, to expose their weaknesses and also those that are, that really care deeply about the work that they do and the impact it has on the world. It's, you know, we spend so much time at work. You want to be passionate about whatever it is that you're doing. And if you're not, you're never going to do that great a job for me or, f- or for yourself. Life is short, everybody. Reach out and do what you want to do. You get one shot. Do not miss your chance. Of course, I'm quoting uh, Slim Shady my, my there, but M&M. yeah, my, my buddy Slim <laughs> you know, Shady. You no, know, that's my rally song. That's you know, that's my that's my song. I, I listen to it every time I go on stage. Anytime I speak publicly, I listen to that. Same. You know, I love it because do not miss your chance. My last question, Greg, before we say thank you for your incredible story is, come on, when your daughter graduates from high school, are you going to channel your mom, hand her a briefcase and say, we're done. Here's a little bit of money. Let's go. Well, I'm not sure they're going to give her an actual briefcase because I think those are a little bit dated. So I might give her <laughs> some sort of cool tote. Um, but I, I have said to both of my daughters and my son, I want you to know that Whatever money you see around this house, the house that you live in, the cars that we drive, this is this is the money that dad and I have earned from the day that we graduated from college. We've worked for the our entire lives and you you don't have any money. So you are <laughs> going to go out and you're going to find what you're good at and we'll be here to support you. You know, we love you, but you're gonna be on your own. So I want you to start thinking about that. And I think that's important for them to understand that whatever you have as a parent is not what they have as a, as a child. And 
I hope to afford them a debt-free education. That will be the gift that I give them. But I believe that they they can do it, and they're going to be on their own. I'll, I'll give them, you know, whatever it is. Maybe 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 with inflation, five thousand is now ten or whatever. I don't know what it is, but it's, <laughs> but I'm going to put them. But I've but I've made it clear to them that they will be on their own. What an inspiring, amazing story that is just so motivational. Greg Renfrew of Beauty Counter, congratulations. Keep doing what you're doing and uh, come back again. We we love these stories that really show that the, the journey is not easy, guys. Everybody who's listening, you know, we have unbelievably successful people here. But boy, did they face a lot of stumbling blocks that they turned into stepping stones. So our thanks to Greg. We appreciate it. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for Everyone Talks to Liz. You guys, make sure to go back and listen to some of the other ones that you haven't listened to. These are important. Make sure to rate them because we love doing this for you. We find these motivational American dream types of stories, and we hope you do too. And of course, once you make your money, you got to watch Fox Business or even before you do, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. It's the Claim and Countdown, the all-important final hour of trade. We'll see you next time. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.